My conversation today is with author, teacher, and Kabbalist David Chaim Smith. David is an esoteric cartographer whose work has intrigued and captivated modern practitioners of Kabbalah, mysticism, and the occult. He has been one of the most frequently requested guests for the podcast, and the reason for this became apparent to me as we spoke. Affable, talented, brilliantly intelligent, and one of the most serious practitioners I have met, our conversation lasted for over two hours as we touched on a variety of topics. With recorded courses and a wealth of published work, which has become a staple of modern Kabbalistic and esoteric contemplative communities, David is also one of the busiest guests I've spoken with. His art, stimulating for many a spiritual impetus by way of the imagination, seeks to translate and map the abstract mesocosmic realms of spirit. Join me now for the season three premiere of the Arcanum podcast and part one of my conversation with David Chaim Smith. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. Yeah, when I was growing up, uh, before 1990, I was uh, involved with ways of exploring my interests, which were pretty much focused on visionary experience, visionary experience and the, the various esoteric overtones that it can have. And the, the medium of visual art became the way that I expressed what I was exploring and um as a teenager i was completely obsessed with certain visionary artists and certain phases of surrealism in particular late surrealism and uh, basically became a um a guy who thought he was going to be an artist well uh that's the power of imagination I mean, you kind of are now. <laughs> that that is that has been augmented. Um, but that that was interesting because that's the question I had for you. Like, have you always have you always been able to sort of enter and 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 you know traverse, I guess, these astral regions and things like that? Has that been something that is that kind of was that you've always had a knack for? Or did you have to develop that skill? That's a really interesting question. First of all. Um, let's start at the beginning. I think there's a big difference between art in the conventional contemporary sense and what I do, which is a form of cartography, esoteric cartography. I think the goals are really quite different, although you could look at a cartographic work and say, oh, it's a piece of art. You wouldn't be wrong in the general sense. But in a contemporary sense, the conventional goals of art are quite different. And that's something that we could talk about very specifically. In esoteric cartography, the misconception is that the visions that are produced are representations of places where the mind has gone. It's impossible to represent where the mind goes. The best you could do is form an imprint of that impossibility and try to express implications of that imprint, but it always will be different than the experience that you've had. Mm. Uh, the source of the imprint and the mind's 
capacity to enter subtle regions, and in, in particular, psychoetheric regions, is always going to be unrepresentable. So what you're representing is an approximation. It's a map that is constructed after the fact based on an imprint. But if that imprint is highly unusual, the expression becomes highly unusual. So that's the process of esoteric cartography. You're actually mapping out an approximation of what has been imprinted upon you. Mm. And in contemporary um, conventional terms, art is what we could call self-expression. Esoteric cartography is not self-expression. I am not expressing myself. How could I express something that I don't even believe exists? So, you know, I, I can't even understand how one would approach this idea of self-expression, nor would I even care about such a thing. So if I'm rejecting self-expression and propaganda and making statements about society and blah, 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 the culture, or art about art, if I'm just pushing all that off the table, what I do in esoteric cartography is not even on the table anymore, as far as the culture is concerned. So there's this huge divide between what I did when I was growing up, which was really try to be an artist, mm -hmm. and what I'm doing now. Even though certain things remain the same, like, for example, I, I always had an interest in biomorphism, and we could talk about that. But to answer your question directly about um, the visionary capacity or the, the capacity to enter into visionary states, um, I think that the capacity was inborn, but like most talents... It doesn't do anything until you cultivate it and refine it. So, yeah, I was born with it, but it didn't really do very much until I worked on it. Mm. That's extremely interesting. Um, I love the idea of esoteric cartography. I'm familiar with that trajectory in a sense, uh, obviously. So I started out as a musician. I was a touring and studio musician in in, in New York for, for many, many, many years. And uh, um yeah, like you're saying, there is this impetus towards like self-expression, even if it's even if it's an attempt to kind of express these vague promptings of the higher self. I guess you could put it that way. Um, uh, something something that ultimately transcends you, your persona, your ego. And then when I got in, when I put that aside and got into magic, you know, uh, particularly in the Hermetic Order, of the Golden Dawn, you get to the Inner Order, and it's it's about it's about theurgy. It's about you getting out of the way and becoming. Uh, a, a throne or a vessel for that aspect of your spiritual architecture, which which really transcends you almost entirely. Uh, I guess some people would call it the bornless part of yourself. Um, mm -hmm. So so now that is kind of the way uh, I try to go about my life, and I do think sometimes what would what would my output have been? Uh, you know, there was a certain amount of ego involved. I used to tell my friends all the time, like if you're in a rock band, you're 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 probably somewhere inside you're cultivating an inner egomaniac because we we probably all could have just been chamber musicians, but that's, it's not nearly as fun to get up, uh, you know, in a string quartet. Um, but um, it, it is interesting. What, essentially what you're describing this sort of transcendence of, of self and, and, and this, this, this mapping of your experience, which, you know, 
I know that you're 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 a Kabbalist, and so we we practice the Hermetic Kabbalah in in um and a lot of a lot of a lot of really hardcore uh Kabbalists would say that doesn't that's not even a thing it doesn't even exist but we we practice that in the hermetic order the golden dawn involves a tremendous amount of path working and scrying and things like that mm -hmm. so that's all kind of stuff that is laid out for you so that you can easily navigate those realms without uh losing yourself kind of but but they're they're meant to generate experiences there um but what i that's find something really we should talk about that's definitely something we should talk about yeah i mean what do you I think about that I was in a Golden Dawn offshoot order for about seven years, and my background is in exclusively in Hermetic Kabbalah. Before I even met a Jewish Kabbalist, I'd say almost 10 years, like seven years, my background was with a rogue Golden Dawn group, um, actually two of them. Uh, one was an offshoot of the SRIA uh, the American version, the plumber version, mm -hmm. as opposed to the English one. And uh, the other was uh, Bota. Great. And the work of Paul Foster Case, which was pretty much my thing. Um, so now I, you know, I tell you about the whole trajectory of the background. It's uh, once I started investigating post-Renaissance Hermeticism, and the Kabbalah with a Q that comes out of it. What I did eventually was develop a really overwhelming desire to pick out root sources. So starting with tarot, with tarot, you go directly into the Sefer Yetzirah because it's basically the Sefer Yetzirah in pictures. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there, um, all the alchemical texts that support the precepts, uh, in particular, the main ones for me that were important from the 17th century were the Book of Lambspring and the Splendor Solus. Mm. Those were the key Western alchemical texts. <clears throat> and, and of course, at a certain point, like most people who would have my interest, I joined the OTO as well. I was in the Golden Dawn Order. I was in the OTO. That's my hermetic order background. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, I, I left all of that because what I was looking for, which was really a form of transmutational alchemy, contemplative alchemy, um, using life force directly, which in a, in a visionary sense, um, I couldn't have articulated it like that at the time, but that's what I was looking for. And um, I kind of hit a wall with ritual. It wasn't doing what I needed, the nourishment that I needed. Um, and at that point, around 1995, I became a member of a small uh, hermitage in the Midwest that was teaching a form of um, tantric alchemy uh, that was led by a teacher coming from the view of <clears throat> old school Vajrayana, the, the old school of Vajrayana, the Nyingma. But, but not Nyingma order monastically, the Nagpa version of the Nyingma order, and was affiliated with them for 30 years, mm. was um, lived out there and um, went through that system with an eye on finding its link to what I was truly interested in, which was uh, Western 
methodologies and symbol systems. So I was never um, uh, part of that system. I always looked at that system as a way to formulate an excavation of something in what I was already doing that I didn't have access to. Mm-hmm. I, fi- I, f- I figured if I wasn't going to find access to it in what I was doing, I would have to find other ways in, but I never abandoned it. And one of the first things they had me do in um, in the Hermitage is go back to Brooklyn and learn Kabbalah for real. Mm. Meaning, I don't want to say that as a pejorative. I, I, no, I get it. Take I that get back. it. Meaning like the the version that preceded Renaissance Hermeticism. Mm -hmm. And um, what I found was the living system of Hasidus. Mm -hmm. And through Hasidus, technical Kabbalah in the Lurianic sense. From my studies there, because I had a teacher, I had a, a, a rabbi in the Breslov lineage, and based on, and I immersed completely in that. I lived in his house and, and, or spent a lot of time in his house, I should say, um, and lived in uh, Borough Park, Brooklyn, where the Hasidic community is, and just soaked it up, soaked it up. But I have zero, zero interest in esoteric religion. Mm-hmm. So I was only there to mine esoterica. You know, and from, and and I had two main teachers there. One was a Breslever Hasid um, who taught me the system that is infused with so much technical Kabbalah, but has a devotional character to it. And the other was a teacher from the yeshiva world, which is the total opposite side of the Jewish spectrum, where I learned a lot of Lurianic stuff, but also was exposed to the earlier schools. And in particular, the Iyun school of the 13th century, which became the thing for me, Hmm. because the foundational text of the Iyun program, if you want to call it that, is a text called the Fountain of Wisdom. And the Fountain of Wisdom is the only Kabbalistic text where the spherot aren't mentioned and the worlds aren't mentioned. Oh, wow. You know, so it, so what does it do if it doesn't do that? Because everybody expects it to do that. Right. So if it's not doing that, what it's doing is giving you pure poetic accounts of psychoetheric imagery and mental texturing and imagistic scenarios through a sort of visionary language in which a, a sort of a, a textural account of the mind's penetration of its own layers is portrayed in terms that have like um, psychographic content to them. So you have to sort of feel your way through what they're suggesting to understand. So what I did, and this is one of the big points of what I do in my work, was put the structure of the spherot back into that material. The material didn't have it, but in order to make sense of it, I was so conditioned to the tree. Mm -hmm. And and when I say conditioned to the tree, my conditioning comes from a hermetic understanding of the tree, which is really quite different. 
I mean, it's informed by all the parts of him in the crazy Lurianic stuff, mm -hmm. but really when it comes down to it, I'm a single tree in the five worlds guy, mm -hmm. you know? So ah, what I five worlds, that's something we don't talk about very often. <laughs> well, Keter, uh, the fifth world would be Keter or Adam Cadmon. Mm -hmm. You know, that would be the, the world where non-duality is realized throughout the lower four. Mm -hmm. You know, and the re the reason why I use the iteration of five is to comprehensive, comprehensively suffuse the symbol system that functions through the five elements, through the right. five senses, through the five levels of the soul, and um, through five stages of reification in which all of these things could either be concretized into ordinary precepts or self-liberated into and so see the whole thing for me is a constant going back to the highest no matter what detail of the process is unfolding the main um what do they say what do they say on star trek the prime directive prime directive yeah <laughs> yeah the prime directive is always return to the highest which is ensof so um the realization of malkut is a realization of ensof the realization through yesod into the middle six spherod of the tree is ensof uh Chokma and bina in their interplay reveals ensof and the rectification of keter becomes ensof mm -hmm. So it's, it's one of those things. It's one of those things in in esoteric orders that it, it it's like it's the five is always hidden behind this door, and there's a there's a carrot on the end of a string that you got you have to chase to get to to get to the five. In the outer order, right, you work the elemental formula, and then you arrive at the pentagram, and you're like, oh yeah, it's it, there's a quintessence. I have to reorganize myself under the auspices of spirit. And the whole time we're giving you exactly that, that axiom, you know, ours is in the golden dawn, it's invoke the highest first. Um, and then, and then, uh, and then you get through and you, eventually it's revealed, um, you know, uh, five pillars instead of four on the, that, that sort of three-dimensional tree of life, five worlds instead of four. It's a very, it's a very interesting, uh, kind of thing that that doesn't really get spoken of much i'm glad that that you work in that paradigm and that you brought that up i think it's very important well that seems to be the whole point of the five six degree yeah you know um the whole idea of the degree structure the rosicrucian degree structure where you have uh a series of enumerations from one to ten equaling a series of enumerations from ten to one is an incremental accounting of what we're talking about here, the realization of essentiality in all of the forms of its display. Mm -hmm. If one is clear about that from the outset, you don't get lost. If you're unclear about that from the outset, then things like the investigation of individual spirits or experiences or different variations of phenomena become huge distractions. Right, right. So the reason why I hit a wall in the way that I was working with these uh, post-Golden Dawn orders was because that message wasn't being clearly given to me with the people I was working with. So after my time with the Hasidim and the Yeshiva Kabbalists who taught me technical Kabbalah, I went back to the Hermitage. I um, absorbed the tantric view, which is essentially non-dual view. Mm. 
And the work that I was tasked with doing for the rest of my life was essentially finding a way to realize non-dual essentiality in these Western symbol systems, which is what I do. Starting about 2008, I started mapping it out visually because I stopped making visual art for 10 years completely to study and practice with these orders that I just listed. You know, uh, I was an artist up until 1994, 1995, 1995, we'll call it 1996. And then I took 10 years to immerse myself in study and practice and nothing else. Never thinking in a million years, I would go back to it. I was done. I was done with the art world. That was for sure. One done with you. Well, at least, at least the you know that that ability, that skill that you have. While while yes, you know you're doing esoteric cartography. I feel like everything eventually leads somewhere. You know, you gain these skills, and it's in hindsight, it's always twenty twenty. Because I, I found, especially through people that have reached out to me to to sort of you know say hey you should have david on um very very influenced by your work particularly in a contemplative sort of uh because i have i have conversations with people that that reach out to me you know it's so i try i try to be accessible and they'll tell me about you know what your work has has been able to do for them and in, in contemplative and and uh and really mystical context which is which is brilliant i mean i'm blown away by it to be honest with you well, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, the word contemplation, most people think of it in a conceptual sense, that that um, the assumption would be that contemplation is deep conceptuality, which is quite the opposite of what I would suggest, where I think the essence of contemplation is realization of a non-conceptual state. However, one realizes that non-conceptual state in the midst of whatever the mind is doing, which is always conceptual by habit. So we're not looking to throw out phenomena or throw out the mind's reflexes. We're looking to change their meaning. Mm. So they do something different. We're not saying, do this, don't do that. Because remember, choosing non-duality over duality is itself dualistic. Right. (laughs) Right. So contemplation is the idea that variation, both from the side of that which knows consciousness and that which is known, the so-called objectivity of the universe, right? That both of them have a common basis, what we could call a common ground. And that ground negates the separation between the the subject consciousness that reifies itself as a perceiver and the phenomena that is perceived in relation to it. And in Kabbalah, as you know, these become the levels of the soul and the worlds, right? Mm. So looking to cut through the fact that such a thing exists. See, ultimately, if you if you place your faith in what the Orthodox Jews say every day in the form of the Shema, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eheinu Adonai Echad, the essence of the divine is one, mm-hmm. then you can't believe that there's such a thing as the levels of the soul. And you can't believe that there are such things as worlds. 
I'm not saying that this phenomenon does not appear. Of course it does. Right. But do we believe that it actually exists? No, it's all and so period. So either you believe in that unity as and so definitively in an absolute sense, or you don't. So I'm a radical in the sense that I, I only place my faith in and so not in the worlds that, that I meander through to get there. Right. Or the levels of the soul that apprehend it. It's Ensof and that's it. And since Ensof is not a thing, since it is, and this is the other thing I should throw in, I have a non-theistic view of Ensof. I do not believe in a creator god or a monad. Mm. I well, monad, monism is actually one of the stages through which realization passes as its essential nature becomes evident so monism is very important as a stage of realization but to reify the monad right yes would create a monist system right it's it's a thing now you're objectifying it you're almost you're almost giving it a quasi personality type of thing or or a total narrative personality which is called god and and uh, the stories associated with it yeah Right. Yeah. So it, if you do that, you have a certain kind of realization. If you if you believe in the creator God as a person, you have a certain kind of realization. If you believe in in a Neoplatonic monad, in a sense, you have a certain kind of realization. There's many, many forms of it. All forms of realization don't go to the same place. All systems don't go to the same place. Right. So one thing that is interesting about my background, I should throw in at this juncture, is that the systems that I just mentioned, meaning the Hasidic version of Kabbalah, the 13th century schools of Kabbalah, and the Vajrayana tantric alchemy that I was involved in, all of them share a very, very strange, unusual way of approaching this issue of what we're saying when you pass through the monad is realized because in the Hasidic schools, the emphasis is on what they call bittel or self nullification. Mm -hmm. And in Vajrayana, they start out with the precept that there is no essentiality that can be reified. There is no thing that is essential that is there either in what perceives or what is perceived. Mm -hmm. So the inherent emptiness or openness of realization in the Vajrayana context goes perfectly with the Hasidic way of using the Kabbalistic symbol system, where there also is no thing being worked on or realized. Yeah. And this is the great mistake that people have about the Hasidic version of Kabbalah. They think that is it is the worship of a creator god, like, like Orthodox Judaism generally is. And on an exoteric level, they'd be correct. But on the deep esoteric level, the Hasidic masters are passing absolutely past that point mm -hmm. beyond the creator God mythology, beyond the reification on a subtle level of its monad mm -hmm. into Ensof as an, a state of pregnant openness or open fullness. And contemplation, to get back to the main point that we were discussing, Contemplation seeks to take whatever the mind is doing and realize that open fullness in the heart of it, mm. which is only 
possible through non-conceptual states. Right. But those non-conceptual states are realizing simultaneously as the mind conceptualizes rather than pushing conceptuality out. This is this is so this is the the, the issue that I have with many I would say uh entry level non-dualists. I think what what you are talking about is exact you're articulating exactly the argument that I that I attempt to make is that um you know both you you have to acknowledge the existence of both of them at the same time. The fact that you you cannot dissociate and and uh, you know it's it's a very s slippery topic to talk about i mean because because of just the, the very rarefied and and i would say paradoxical nature of everything but it's it's like like you were saying it's all in self but also we don't we don't want to push phenomena or phenomenality off of the table right because as we as we live you know our lived experience um, has to include that in some way, but you're, what you're talking about is an underlying realization, which is the essence of transcendence. You yes. know, to be able to have both at the same time is transcendence, really, because you, that that means you're not picking one over the other. You can understand the absolute reality of the Ain Sof, and it's it's pretty interesting because Neoplatonically, so again, like right, like you're talking about exoteric and esoteric. So exoteric Neoplatonism that you find in academia has this obsession with, with Plotinus's monad. But at the end of the day, that was more of an interpretation by later Neoplatonists. Plotinus didn't know how to explain it. So he, he, he espoused apophaticism, which is like, I can only talk about this by telling you what it's not. Because there's no way for me to, it's beyond every quality and every characteristic, which I find really interesting. And that kind of brings me to my next question really quickly. Is that a bust of Socrates over your shoulder, or am I imagining? Yeah, that? no, that absolutely is. And um, <laughs> just to finish up on what you just said, when when Plotinus cites the alone to the alone, he's talking about exactly what we're saying. Yeah. You know, because the essence of the non-dual understanding of that message is not monism in the academic sense as a philosophical stance. Right. It's a form of mysticism. Mm -hmm. So you could you could look at, at a dividing line, right? On one side of the dividing line, you have phenomena, experiences, what we could call cataphatic or positive uh, perception and reality. On the other side, you have the apophatic openness-nothingness of pure potentiality. What mysticism, and in particular mystical contemplation, does is erase that dividing line so that everything and nothingness reveal their common essence, their common essentiality, which can't be reified into a state of being or a state of non-being. And this is one of the pet peeves I have with post-Renaissance Hermetic Kabbalah is their statement of the ensof as a negative limitless light how could it be negative it's neither negative nor positive and to to iterate it into a triad and and so and so forth is an emanationist right. precept and this is one thing that i attack directly in my work 
by calling my work non-eminationism mm. because I do not believe that any level or stage stepped down from the absolute in order to manifest. Even on the level of Ensof, the light of Ensof, its ore, mm. did not emanate from Ensof. Nothing came from anything else. It is a self-illuminating openness that manifests, and out of that self-illuminating luminosity, all the forms of knowing and all the variations of phenomena that are known arise. But it never leaves openness. Mm -hmm. How can it? Openness is complete and whole and perfect. Right. Either you believe that or you don't. And if you don't, you believe in steps and stages of diminishment from an absolute to what we could think we perceive as a so-called physical world, right? So the reason why I talk so much about non-reification, and like you said before, I use a five-fold derivation of the hierarchy of, of misunderstanding, we could say, mm -hmm. is because really that there's five basic qualities that we attribute to phenomena that reify it. There, we assume that there is substance. We assume that the substance manifests in a dimension. We assume that that dimension moves according to a timeline, that it's temporal. We conceptualize about it. And finally, we attribute it to either existence or non-existence. It either is or is not. So in, in a non-emanationist uh, approach, one views the assertion of substance as substancelessness. One views dimensionality, which is really just a sense of place or placement, coordinates of place, as, as a non-dimensionality. We view time as an atemporal um, uh, assertion. And the concepts of all of these things are viewed from the the virtue of non-conceptuality and being and non-being are completely transcended at the root right and the root in the kabbalistic symbol system is keter so keter can can do anything in in the 13th century material keter is called a mirror in which all can be seen so the real question is are we looking at the reflections in the mirror and thinking that they're real, or are we looking at the virtues of the mirror itself? And the mirror has no image of its own, mm -hmm. right? So if Keter is just a lens through which we see reflections and take them as real, like the shadows on the wall of the cave, mm -hmm. then what we're doing essentially is using Keter as a restraint between the infinite and the finite. Right, the veil. Yeah. If we don't do that, or if we aspire to not do that, then Keter ceases to manifest a, re a restraining function mm -hmm. and becomes in a transparency, an invitation directly for Ensof to inhabit and be realized in all things. And that's what I call the crowning Keter of the kingdom, Malkut, right. so the two are realized as one in the same. The way that I do this through the symbol system of my work is heavily influenced 
by uh, tantric alchemy. So I'm talking really about things that are usually symbols that are usually not used by hermetic occultists, such as this non-dual interplay of the union of the sun and the moon, mm-hmm. at which, by the way, in my system are reversed from the hermetic ones. In my system, the sun is female and the moon is male. Interesting. Yeah, that's pure Tantra. That's what most Tantric systems use. Mm. Um, That's from 30 years in a Tantric gar, Mm. you know. But it actually goes completely with the Hasidic interpretation of Kabbalah in this weird way. So it's funny, as as a hermetic Kabbalist with a Q... I'm bringing to the table this stuff from way outside, right where you and I live. Because I'm like you. I function as a hermetic Kabbalist for the most part. So I'm with you on that. My time with Orthodox Jews was really a way of touching um, the heart of the Kabbalistic system devotionally. Mm-hmm. which is the way that I brought in what I got from the tantric system. Because the one thing you could say about Hasidus is that it's pure devotion. It's a pure devotional language. And the mechanism of its forms of meditation are devotional forms. Mm-hmm. And the dry intellectualism of the university the nihilism of the university, the reductionism Absolutely. of the university. It's cut through by that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny. I was in a university when I had my first sort of like what you're saying, uh, I guess a species of of that breakthrough in Malkuth um, where the, the middle pillar just kind of opened up. Um, but it happened experientially where I all of a sudden felt as if I, were, I weren't walking in the world, but if everything just moved around me and I was completely still. Um, and from that sort of elaborated this time of, or this, this idea of, or this concept really of the, the non-linear nature of time, just the, the ever present now, I guess it might be calling some like Buddhist schools and things like that. So yeah, it, it's been, it's been a lot to wade through because you're given so many symbols uh, that were initially used as, like you were saying earlier, kind of ladders, the way, you know, the monad is a stage to understanding, uh, you know, infinity, basically. But uh, you're given all these symbol systems, and yeah, they become they become ends in themselves. And I think a lot of that has to do with a lot of people wielding, and I'm, this is an indictment of anyone in particular, it's just what happens over time is that... Um, you know, and and it's 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 so many degrees removed from from the sources. Uh, the, a lot of the people who use it don't understand that that's the case, and that's one of the beautiful things that I find in um, in Platonism, and and particularly you know the early Platonic dialogues, since since it seems we have common ground there too. For me, I have a very strong. I see I see uh, Kabbalah and and very very early in the greek in the greek work it's not it's not a it's not a complete system but it's it's almost all there uh but i the thing about like uh um dialogues like timaeus and phaedrus you have essentially plato saying through socrates or you know 
we have there at a certain level, there is no other way to talk about these things. We need the stories I tell you about, you know, the myth of Ur, this, this near-death experience in ancient times, all these things that I'm telling you about, they may not represent the actual reality of these things, but they are helpful in being able to convey things which transcend words. And in that way, stories and narratives are mythic, they're symbolic, they're symbol systems, and they communicate symbol systems. But... Um, you know, as Socrates says in one of the dialogues, the myth, were we to be persuaded by it, would save us. Yeah, well, that's the working definition of the difference between an exoteric and an esoteric approach is that the exoteric approach believes in the myths as if they were true. Mm. You know, uh, the exoteric approach reduces the myths to like a two-dimensional framework whereas the volume and the depth of what we could call what we pass through is the three-dimensionality of those myths as a living thing mm -hmm. opens up esoterically and the, the difference really comes down to the idea of perceiving phenomena itself as either a thing or a symbol mm -hmm. and what a symbol does is allow for open-ended transmission so if you could pass through the myth as a symbol there is no definitive correspondence as to what this or that symbol means. The other pet peeve I have with occultists is the reduction of everything to correspondences. Because obviously, at a certain point, you have systems of correspondence that conflict with each other. Absolutely. Is one right and the other wrong? No, of course not. You can't think like that. And this is one thing that I learned very early on as I was digesting the symbol system of Hermetic Kabbalah, the symbol system of Hasidic Kabbalah, the symbol system of early 13th century Kabbalah, the, the symbol system of Lurianic technical Kabbalah, all at the same time. Is one of them right? No. They are all coming from different vectors of interpretation and converging in things beyond system. And it was my job, it's the job of the student to find that place of convergence that cannot be articulated by any system ever, because it's it's translinguistic and and beyond the portrayal of a graphic seal of any kind. Mm -hmm. Then if you find that or or retrieve sparks of that, the sparkling, effusive, um, diaphanous nature of that realization floods through your inner sensorium, you could express those same symbols back with new meaning and reinvent them. And this is my life's work was the reinvention of symbols that everybody's using, but in a new way. Right. And that's why I started to put out these books because I, I had so much material from so many years of doing this that at a certain point, I just said, fuck it. I'm going to write books. Yeah. Hell yeah. That's great. I'm, I'm kind of there now, but <laughs> fuck it. I'm going to write books. Right. That's, that's the, that's the New Yorker in us. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about it is that um, when I stopped making art or stopped visual art in like 1996 or so, I, I was disgusted by the idea of any kind of public externalization of this to try to turn it into a 
uh, uh, self-expression, self-aggrandizement, I'm an authority portrayal to lead other people. Right. I mean, I'm not, I live a hermit life. I live a reclusive retreatant's life. I'm not really interested in working with others, which you could take as the ultimate selfish point of view, ironically, for somebody who wants to negate the concept of a self. But the reality of it is that I have so much to do that how could I possibly get involved with other people in their experiences and practice? That seems to me to be a role better suited to a therapist than uh, than an esoteric explorer. So I just don't do it. I mean, that's just my personal predilection. Besides, I would probably suck at it, you know. And so what happened was that over the years, I did teach a lot, you know, probably for selfish reasons, because you work out material in teaching that you wouldn't work out any other way. Absolutely. So I had a small Kabbalah school uh, on 53rd Street. Oh, wow. In Manhattan. Yeah, in like uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. I don't know how many years I did it for. I had two locations. I, I had that one and then one on 27th Street, where I mostly got students who bailed out of uh, the Kabbalah Center, which is this big kind of scam organization run by this guy Berg and where they basically teach you kind of like pop psychology, mm. you know, and, and try to get money from people. And I guess just the fact that I wasn't trying to get money from people was enough of a draw that at least I'm not trying to rob you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing I, I for a long time too, I, I you know, there's a, there's a heavy admonishment towards not, not allowing yourself to to kind of take take the reins again uh ever unattended by by uh you know that that i guess in in the in the golden dawn at a certain level you would consider it the higher divine genius which again is a symbol it's a symbol um and a lot of people get it that's why i don't like this idea of the holy guardian angel i don't think that they're the same thing and there's there's very very I would personally say just from knowing them, regardless of their, their degree or what merit magical merit badge they're wearing, but just knowing some of these, these, these adepts who have worked the system for decades that are, that are very high in achievement. They don't believe the HGA, the Holy guardian angel is the same thing as it's not the same symbol because one is, one is trying to, to express what you, what is conceptualized as a higher version of the act, spiritual architecture um which is to say that ladder that you're saying that we have to climb to to sort of get through why you work through the worlds to get to aim so the 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 higher divine genius of the golden dawn is the medial point it's conceptualized as the medial point of that ladder and and it kind of it can move up and down or you can sort of traverse through it um, to those more rarefied states, whereas this idea of the holy guardian angel is completely externalized. It's it's supposed to be, you know, like almost like the the um, Iranian Fravashi, like this this tutelary or guardian spirit that bring that that is here with you, kind of similar to the diamond, which which I right. Which, which, you got the diamond exactly, which I believe, you know, I mean, we get the term G 
divine genius from T Thomas Taylor's translation of that word in diamond in the, he translated it as genius um, to, in, in, in the platonic words, but um, you know, working under the auspices of that higher aspect of yourself, you're not, you know, it, it can, there's, there's a lot of this interplay that it, it, you, you can, I can struggle through where it's like, how much of myself am I, am I is, is getting in the way here? And, you know, I have devoted my life to this and uh, you know, is it, is it ethical for me to be, you know, monetizing content and stuff like that? It's a serious question for me that, you know, the only way I'm able to, to navigate that and keep pushing forward is by the constant promptings. I'm constantly checking in. I'm constantly, I guess the cliche term would be interpreting the omens of my life, you know, communicating with my, ex my quote unquote exterior environment, it's, which is essentially the magical mirror of my, my, my universe, right? That 360 mirror, almost like you're saying about, uh, about Kether. But that's, that's kind of like, you know, like you were saying earlier about how you, you, you wanted to, you were just disgusted with this idea of, of kind of putting the persona out there. It's definitely a struggle in at when you're out in this arena, but um, you know, what ways do you, do you usually, what do you take to mitigate that? You know, I know isolation can kind of work sometimes against that as you were, you were kind of suggesting. What, well, the way that I mitigate that is by understanding that I do not, I have not accomplished stable realization that the work is incomplete. Mm. So if there is a breakthrough of some kind and that breakthrough is expressed as an experience. I don't trust experience because in order for it, an experience to arise and be designated as such in the mind, there has to be a subject perceiver and some object state thought feeling etheric texture, whatever it is that becomes the object for that subject perceiver to grasp the, the perceived object. Mm. If there's a subject perceiver and a perceived object, it ain't realization. It's not gnosis. So you can't reduce any of this to experience. Wisdom is the capacity to cut through experience as human beings know it to its heart essence, to its core. Since breakthroughs sparks that i might perceive during my practice are certainly possible i'm not stabilized in those breakthroughs mm -hmm. i always fall back to the to the conventional state of believing that i'm a um that this is me and as long as that's happening i cannot trust the experiences that arise so i have to go deeper i have to try harder i have to move past those markers they're useful Mm -hmm. markers but they are certainly not definitive and this goes back to what you were saying before there's many many people who are thinking that they're getting these messages from the hga or however they want to frame the agatha diamond yeah. right if you are getting messages or experiences from a designated other Mm -hmm. you are still in the conventional framework right. and you can you can place your money on the bet 
that that voice is your ego. Yes. 100%. (laughs) So if the HGA ends up being your own ego, and that's a best case scenario, worst case scenario is it's your mother. (laughs) You know, if you want to get Freudian about it, but the whole thing of it is even, even if it's the voice of the, the Jungian collective, you're still conceptualizing. So that has nothing to do with mysticism. You, I, I feel like I feel like you might be Plotinus reincarnated, man. <laughs> this is straight out of this is the whole dilemma of the soul's descent into materiality. Is exactly what you're talking about. The subject object issue. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is that is Socrates over there. Yeah. And it's funny because when people see that I have Socrates over here, when I do like Zoom classes and whatnot. Their opinion of Socrates, mostly via Aristotle, yeah. is um, it's it's so geared towards the academic rationalism, which is is so not the way that I see it. Yeah, I, dude, I've been telling people the last like five years, the Platonic dialogues are mystical documents. <laughs> yes, when I was a teenager, I I dropped out of high school in ninth grade. And um, I convinced the powers that be to let me go to Queens College. And I had a philosophy professor named Joseph Mullally who taught classical Western philosophy, mostly mostly Plato. And that's where I started thinking about that stuff with with this guy who was a, a hardcore devotional, if not mystical Catholic. He was like an old Irish guy from Queens, of the old school, you know, old, real old school. And when I heard this stuff, when I heard him explain it devotionally, there was so much of his heart. And he went off in his, in his rationalism too, but I just disregarded that. And when I heard what his heart was saying to me, I knew instantly that number one, you can't get it from the books. You have to actually contemplate what the books are suggesting and read between the lines. And number two, they ain't going to tell you. They're they're not going to give you a method. (laughs) They're not going to give you a method. And this is probably the biggest problem with the symbol systems in Kabbalah that we get both hermetically and Jewishly is that the missing ingredient is methodology. And that's by design because if you were to give out methodologies that would so-called work, you there? Ah, yes. You would turn them into, you would reify them into mechanistic systems that could get very graspy and fixated. And if, if you turned a mystical methodology or a spiritual methodology into a mere mechanism, you'd lose its heart essence instantly. So you can't go disseminating methodologies like you're like you're putting together a motorcycle. You know, you'll kill it. Part two of this conversation can be streamed on the Arcanum Patreon, a link to which is in the about section of this episode. Thank you for listening. In loose.